Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here again. Thanks for downloading this episode of the China History Podcast. At long last, we finished off the Deng Xiaoping overview, and today I want to introduce someone who was a true legend and a gold standard in Chinese history and culture. Yet the subject of today's topic is probably not too well known outside China. We're going to go back about 900 years before Deng Xiaoping was born to the beginning of the 11th century, the early part of the Song Dynasty. Today we will look at Ouyang Xiu. It's that Ouyang name again, one of the more common Chinese compound surnames of more than one syllable. He's referred to in multiple sources as China's Leonardo da Vinci. He's called this not at all due to his abilities as a great artist. He's compared to the lesser of Leonardo's claims to fame, his being a universal man, homo universalis. You know, back in the day when the entire accumulation of world knowledge could fit in a thimble compared to today, you often had these polymaths, these Renaissance men, universal men, who excelled, and in fact didn't just excel, but were giants in multiple subjects, in the West, we have, well, Leonardo, Galileo, Copernicus, Francis Bacon, Erasmus, Newton. Well, in China, they had their versions of these very, very smart people who left their mark in history and their impact and influence on all the generations who followed them. Ouyang Xiu was a statesman, a compiler of histories, a calligrapher, poet, and a writer. His career was dedicated to the state, in this case the Song Dynasty emperors. He served with distinction, was dedicated to the preservation of learning for future generations. In a culture that venerates their scholars and clean, upright officials of an earlier time, Ouyang Xiu is maybe one of the more well-known examples from Chinese history. He lived from 1007 to 1072, the northern Song dynasty had only been in existence for 47 years. It was in 960, if you recall, that Zhao Kuangyin had at last picked up the last of the pieces that were the five dynasties and ten kingdoms and united China under a single ruler. Well, most of China. As it was for most of history, China was rimmed on the periphery with all these non-Han Turkish, Tibetan, Mongol, Manchu types, not to mention all those various peoples of the Golden Triangle area where Yunnan, Burma, Thailand, Laos, and Vietnam are all located. But historical China proper, at least, belonged to the Chinese and was unified. Now, just to back up and review, these are from the earlier China History Podcast episodes 26, 27, 28. The Tang Dynasty fell after a long period of decay in 907 AD. They're vanquished and China crumbles into pieces. There's the five dynasties and ten kingdoms that lasted for 70 years until, like I said, Zhao Kuangyin comes in and founds the Song Dynasty. Now, up in the north, the Kitan Empire of the Liao Dynasty was still going strong and had some staying power. They were thriving and would last until Kublai Khan's Mongols did to them what they did to everyone else. Actually, the Kitans, or Chitan, were Mongols themselves who had migrated from Mongolia to the area that is now Inner Mongolia, Manchuria. They hung out there from the fall of the Tang in 907 until 1125. And it's right around this time 
that the Jurchens booted the Song dynasty out of the north of China from their capital at present-day Kaifeng, and they regrouped later south of the Yangtze River in present-day Hangzhou. So that's the big picture if you want to recalibrate your mental timeline there. So we have the northern Song first, and that's followed by the southern Song. This was all covered in China History Podcast episodes 28 and 29. So, Ouyang Xiu is born into the early part of the Song, during the reign of the third emperor, Zhenzong, early 11th century AD. This is the late Middle Ages. The Scandinavian region had just been converted to Christianity. The Capetian dynasty ruled in France. Romanesque art and architecture was all the rage. It was the golden age of Kiev up in Russia. Vladimir the Great had brought Christianity to Russia in his usual forceful way. The Holy Roman Empire was just starting. The Byzantine Church had just broken with Rome. The Northern Song was unfolding in China right about the time, you could say, just before the First Crusade. So there's your point of reference with uh, what was happening in the West. The important thing to know, to keep in mind about this period, was that it marked a time when there was a very sudden shift, in a positive direction, I might add, in the economy of China and in intellectual life. China, at this point, is still centuries ahead of the Christian West as far as the main measuring sticks go, you know, technologically, commercially, politically, in the arts and sciences and in literature. The thing about the Song Dynasty, which I went into some detail in episode 28, was that it was such an incubator for new ideas, for art, literature, everything. This was the time when the kilns at Jingdezhen were established that put out so many ancient Song Dynasty ceramic treasures. This early Song period, it truly was a golden age of learning and a flowering of the arts if there ever was one. Movable type printing had recently been invented, and this had resulted in a big bang of books flooding into Chinese society and doing all the good and positive things books did and still do today. This was China's Gutenberg moment, and we all know what Gutenberg did for Europe in the mid-15th century. Right about now, the early Song is the time when rice takes over in China as the king of grains. China always being, you know, mostly a northern kind of a place, predominantly used wheat. Well, not anymore. And these advances in rice cultivation doubled the population during the period of the Song. China's population hits nine figures for the first time. The Song economy also saw an unprecedented expansion in size and diversity. Service industries that never existed before suddenly popped up all over these cities within the force of gravity of the Grand Canal. And it was Ouyang Xiu, arguably more than anyone else, who exemplified all that was possible from all this new learning. He was good in all the things that mattered to the scholarly class. He was a brilliant statesman, master calligrapher, trusted for his sagaciousness, his literary skills from prose to poetry. He had a profound influence on an age that historians look back on as one of the golden ages of China. He mentored a whole stable of young men of talent who carried on his reforms and ideas long after he passed. Mostly he's remembered for his contributions in calligraphy, literature, and historiography rather than as a statesman. He was a major force in the 
early part of his career with many ideas he had for making the government better. But later on in the second half of his career, he couldn't get any respect and sort of distanced himself from the reform movement. If you remember from the previous episode 28, one of the things that set the Song dynasty apart from the other major dynasties, the Tang, the Han, was that these people who rose to these high spots in the government were all new men, not the landed gentry that had ruled China and enjoyed all the best privileges and benefits of their connections. It had always been like this since the very beginning. The northern aristocrats had always been the Kennedys, uh, Windsors, and Habsburgs of their day. Now, in these Song times, people like Ouyang Xiao, who came from modest, non-aristocratic backgrounds, were rising to positions of great power and influence merely on the back of their industriousness, effectiveness at getting things done, and exhibiting the kind of sagacity that was so revered since Confucian times. So the Song rulers opened those floodgates for men of talent to rise in society and to serve the emperor. Ouyang Xiao was not only from a common background, he was a southerner to boot. You see, southern China, that is the part of China south of the Yangtze River, all those provinces, Hunan, Sichuan, Jiangxi, Guizhou, Zhejiang, Fujian, Guangdong, Guangxi, this part of China, even only going back as far as the Song Dynasty, over a thousand years ago, these parts of China were like our Wild West here in the U.S. These were also, you know, Han Chinese, but there was also a good number of non-Han people on the fringes of the South. And a lot of these people from Tibet, Yunnan, Vietnam, and some of the areas rimming Southeast Asia, they had been mixing with the Hans of the South for centuries. So coming from the South of China and mixing with the Northerners, at least prior to the Song Dynasty, that is, sort of put you at a social disadvantage, you know, only in terms of prevailing attitudes at the time, how northern Chinese might view their status in the grand scheme of things compared to those southerners who were always so far from all the action, you know, in Chang'an or Luoyang, Zhengzhou, Kaifeng. In any case, now in the Song Dynasty, China had reached this stage in its social and political development, and the 90 or 100 million or so people who made up the Chinese population around then had already started to bind together more, and there was less and less of this northern or southerner thing than before. Ouyang Xiao was born in Sichuan, but his roots were near Qi'an, Jiangxi, so that more than qualified him to be a southerner. Actually, he never lived in Jiangxi. His father was a civil servant who served as a minor official in Sichuan, and this is where Ouyang Xiao was born and grew up. So he was one of that growing crop of budding scholar bureaucrats who were able to cut that incredibly durable link to their ancestral village or town. Ouyang Xiao's home was wherever he happened to be serving at the time. And at the end of his days, after serving all over China, he picked Fuyang in Anhui as his retirement place. Now that's quite an endorsement for that town. Ouyang Xiao always made a good living, but he didn't take advantage of his position in the government to enrich himself or acquire all the obvious trappings of wealth. Ouyang emerged onto the scene in China through the hard work of his father, who you know, died when he was young, and from his uncles, who were all civil servants. There were also other Ouyang family members, all from the south of China, who had gone through the 
whole civil service exam system, received their jinshir degrees, and rose up the ladder based on their own achievements. So the path that Ouyang Xiu followed, well, multiply this by a lot. The time had finally come when there was some upward mobility for this whole slice of the population. They began to slowly work the whole civil service exam system, get appointments if they got their jinshir degree, and then possibly go on to make their mark in the government and Chinese society. Ouyang Xiu was essentially raised by his mother, a literate woman. They were cared for by Ouyang's uncle, and how much of their poverty is true or exaggerated is unknown. He exhibited all the early signs that are common to pretty much all scholars, wherever they are in the world. Voracious reader, excelling in all subjects, exhibiting that discipline required in these early years to ensure academic success later on. It's said that during his formative years growing up, he was exposed to the writings of Han Yu. Han Yu was a late Tang Dynasty essayist, writer of prose, and was influential in launching the Neo-Confucianism movement that exploded onto the scene in the Song Dynasty. It was Han Yu and Li Ao who laid all the groundwork to bring Confucianism back to life. And Ouyang Xiao was heavily influenced by these writings and the whole matter of Confucianism and its role in government was a very big deal during the Song period. Han Yu and later Ouyang Xiao, may I say, no fans of Buddhism, but the Confucianists, they were always at odds with the Buddhists with so much at stake all the time. Ouyang Xiao failed in his first and second attempts to pass the civil service exam, which shows you how hard it was. But he got it by his third try in 1030 when he was 22 years old. His first posting was in Luoyang, which you no doubt all recall from the previous podcasts, had served as the capital of the Eastern Zhou Dynasty and a few smaller dynasties, and made a comeback in the Tang Dynasty, serving as the Eastern capital. Western capital, of course, being in Chang'an. Now, Luoyang was not the capital of the Northern Song, but because of its historical and cultural past, it still retained a role as a cultural center and attracted all manners of literati. So young Ouyang Xiao was thrown into this world that was populated with many scholar bureaucrats just like himself, young holders of jinshu degrees, and these comrades would do the 11th century version of hanging out and carousing together and lacking all the cool and amazing stuff we have today in our world. One of the things these birds of a feather who Ouyang Xiao ran with, they would share their writings and study and recite the works of the great poets like Han Yu, write poetry, visit the Chinese versions of Japanese geisha houses where these ladies were very cultivated and literate, many no less witty and talented than their customers. This period saw a major boom in the uh, courtesan business. And that, my friends, is how Ouyang Xiao spent his 20s in Luoyang, and that's where he began to acquire his reputation not just as a partier and ladies' man, but also as a budding poet and writer, as well as an able administrator. Like many intellectuals of the time, he loved to stick together with people of his own ilk. His whole life, he loved to surround himself with smart people, and he mentored many aspiring scholar officials who owed their entire careers to his early sponsorship. And this was not only people who had Ouyang's political views, he cultivated all manners of young intellectuals even those of differing views who later turned against him late in life. 
Many came to disagree with uh, Ouyang Xiu after Northern Song political life became rife with factions. But no one could deny him his due as a fair and honest man who had done a lot to further the careers of many officials without lining his pockets or any of that funny stuff. The Song dynasty was a time of change, and wherever there's change in the air, there's always a lot of resistance. And this problem of factionalism at court more than once caused Ouyang Xiu to falter. There are two names mainly associated with Ouyang Xiu. The first is the Confucian idealist Fan Zhongyan, and the other is Wang Anshi. Fan comes first. Fan Zhongyan was your typical new man who had risen up the ladder, and now that he was in a position of influence, he joined in the rallying cry for reforms in the government, the military, and the civil service exam system. Ouyang Xiu was one of Fan's protégés. We mentioned Fan in episode 28. They both saw certain aspects of China's past as the key to resolving China's present problems. They blamed Buddhism as one of the chief ultimate causes of all the corruption in government. Fan Zhongyan one day made what in retrospect would be a grievous error when he, the mayor prefect of Kaifeng, openly criticized a high-ranking official at court, saying that he had shown favoritism at court in the appointment of officials. Fan had proposed reforms that would settle this matter of how to avoid favoritism and appointments to the government. The conservatives jumped all over Fan Zhongyan on this, and he had to run for cover. And they convinced the emperor that Fan was trying to sow discord at the top, and the emperor, he went along for the ride. But this wasn't before Ouyang Xiu rose to the defense of his mentor and colleague, criticizing Fan's lead attacker. And for this... Ouyang Xiu miscalculated, for even though he was a respected voice in the central government and by now renowned for his literary accomplishments, he wasn't immune to the forces of imperial politics and intrigue. The drumbeat during the early part of the Song for reform in China was pretty steady, and we probably don't have to look any further than our own politics of the day to see that both sides were playing for keeps, and the conservative faction was prepared to go to the mattresses to oppose all of these reforms. They were no pushover and not to be taken lightly. All of these new men who had risen fair and square, they were not well-liked by the uh, conservative faction. So Ouyang Xiu, he takes a fall. Back in those days, your punishment for these kinds of things was demotion to a less prestigious posting somewhere out in the provinces. In Ouyang Xiu's case, this was out in western Hubei. If you recall from episode 28, concurrent with the northern Song dynasty, you had the Liao dynasty to the north and the western Xia dynasty to the west of the Liao. The Liao made a military move on the northern Song, and they almost made it to Kaifeng, but before this could happen, the northern Song in 1004 cried uncle and signed the Treaty of Shanyuan. Again, this is all in episode 28 on the northern Song. Basically, the Song ruler said, okay, we'll pay you this ridiculous amount of silver and silk and whatnot, and you guys just hang back and leave us alone. Don't harass us. And so this was the kind of peace that was made. Then the Western Xia got wind of this, and they also wanted a piece of the action. So with this potentially explosive situation on their hands, the Western Xia, Tanguts, and these Kitans, and also the Jurchens to the north, they were all breathing down the emperor's neck. You know, times were great, and the economy was vibrant. It was an amazing time of economic expansion in China, but still, 
It was a huge strain on the treasury to keep paying these guys off just so that they leave the Han Chinese alone. The emperor remembered that it was always the disgraced Fan Zhongyan who had advocated for military reform before. The emperor no doubt regretted not listening to him. So Fan is recalled to Kaifeng to develop a strategy to defend against these on-again, off-again barbarian nemeses. And in a famous story, which, you know, showed just what kind of a guy Ouyang Xiao was, he really wanted to get a chance to get a posting out west to participate in this war. I guess he had, you know, great military aspirations or something. Short story, he didn't get the posting. But Fan Zhongyan did get sent to defend against the Western Xia, and he used his influence to get Ouyang Xiao a posting as a kind of secretary or something. But alas, this noble and upright official, this model of character, he refused the offer because he didn't want to take advantage of his guanxi, his relationship with Fan. So he passed on this shot to achieve one of his dreams. And, of course, today, a thousand years after his death, we're still talking about these things. And, you know, what a stand-up guy Ouyang Xiao was. Given his reputation as a scholar, he was given a somewhat gargantuan task. And this was to prepare an annotated catalog of the 80,000-volume Imperial Library. This was known as the Zhongwen Zongmu. It's one of the other interesting things Ouyang Xiao was credited with. He also pioneered the field of archaeology in his efforts to provide evidence to back up the histories written and handed down through the ages, Ouyang Xiao arranged for any and all kinds of evidence to be gathered for study, cataloging, and preservation. These would be things like stone rubbings from ancient artifacts or temples. This whole period, the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries in China, were periods when many compilations were made of ancient and not-so-ancient texts. Encyclopedias were written, ancient relics were categorized and inventoried. You know, everything we know about ancient China today, it all came from these guys who from time to time throughout the centuries, since even before Sima Qian in the Han Dynasty, these scholars like Ouyang Xiao, they, they appeared every now and then. And before too much got lost, they would take stock of everything that had been written and had happened since previous records were written. And they cataloged these things, copied them, commented on them, and went to all kinds of efforts to preserve China's past. It's not like 250 years of U.S. history. I mean, by the time Ouyang Xiao came along, it had been 2,000 years since Zhou Gong. So, you know, a lot of Chinese wisdom tended to accumulate. So when people like Ouyang Xiao came along and did such a bang-up job of organizing everything, it has provided no small amount of benefit to later generations who looked to ancient China for some wisdom or precedent. Now, it's common knowledge that histories were altered, and who knows how much of what made it down to these times is true, or how much was fabricated, exaggerated, or tweaked. You know, in China, being able to look back in history to find some precedent to justify some modern political action was always an effective means to an end. So liberties were often taken to tweak things to serve the interests of the later dynasty who was compiling uh, that particular history. One example would be how Ouyang Xiao, in one of his historical masterworks, the Xin Wu Dai Shi, the new history of the five dynasties, about that 
period uh, immediately preceding the Song, he famously removed the later Liang dynasty, leaving only four dynasties instead of five. So horrible, cruel, and wretched were the later Liang rulers. Ouyang Xiao said it was better to remove them and pour scorn on them so as to let later generations know what weighted those who chose the rough and uncivilized ways employed by the later Liang dynasty kings. So as far as Ouyang Xiao was concerned, it wasn't five dynasties and ten kingdoms. There were only four dynasties. This was a very good example how it was done. I don't know if you can characterize it as revisionism, but the facts certainly had some flavoring added. During the reign of the Renzong Emperor, the fourth emperor of the northern Song, he, he was like uh, Tang Xuanzong, the Tang Dynasty ruler of uh, Yang Guifei fame. He ruled not only when the dynasty hit its peak, but also when the dynasty began its slow decline. And so it was with the long-reigning Renzong Emperor. Just as you had conservative and reform factions at the capital in Kaifeng, you also had factions that called to maintain the policy of pacification with the Liao and Western Xia. The flip side of that political viewpoint was the faction that called for the emperor to stand up and fight. They wanted to whip the military into shape and go out and teach these Tanguts and Jurchens and Kitans a thing or two. And it was under the Renzong emperor that these reformers prevailed, and you had the so-called Qingli reforms, named after the regnal name of one of the periods in Renzong's emperorship. This was from 1041 to 1048. These also were referred to as the minor reforms, to differentiate them from the major reforms, which we'll speak about in a minute. Also, the uh, Qingli reforms, these were led by Fan Zhongyan and Ouyang Xiao. They were put in effect between 1043 and 1045, over much resistance at court. But just as fast as these reforms were put into effect, the Emperor Renzong, well, you know, this always happened. Someone was able to whisper in his ear the right words, and wouldn't you know it, all the reforms were rescinded, and the reformers were put on the defenses, and there was a major anti-reform backlash. So once again, Fan Zhongyan was dismissed from his post and sent into oblivion to toil away at various government posts, far from where all the real action was. Ouyang Xiao as well, he had to take a bullet too, and despite his fame and his good name, he ended up in various positions in the provinces. In 1049, he gets called back to the imperial court for some minor posting, and as soon as he gets back, his mother dies. And according to the way they did things back then, the period of mourning was a couple years, and this was spent mostly in the town of Yingzhou in Fuyang in Anhui. He was serving there as an official during his period of semi-disgrace and found this place to his liking and started to build his retirement nest there. According to the tradition, he had to take his parents back to their ancestral home. This was in Jiangxi province. So he carried out this filial task that was demanded of him according to the tradition. It was just like that movie, The Road Home, What a Fu Qin Mu Qin, my favorite director, Zhang Yimou. Love that movie. In 1054, the year of the uh, Crab Nebula blew and was noticed by astronomers in Song Dynasty China, the Arab world, and in Japan, Ouyang Xiao returned to court and was received by the Emperor Renzong, who gave him the posting of Hanlin Academician. I don't know, I guess you could call this something like the uh, Scholar General. It was quite an honorary post and was an acknowledgement of Ouyang Xiao's eminence in the field of learning. 
For the next several years, until 1060, he compiled another history. This one, the Xin Tang Shu, or the New Book of Tang. This was about the uh, Tang Dynasty, of course. Later on, after that, he was made a kind of ambassador or emissary to the Liao Dynasty, Kitan people. He was he was a real rock star in front of these guys. I mean, we may have referred to these people as barbarians, but that is hardly true. Chinese culture was very much admired and passionately studied outside of Han China. And in those days, if you wanted to talk about some good poetry and prose writing, no one beat Ouyang Xiao, and he was a real big name in his day by this time. He was a very high-ranking official of no small repute, and someone with his magnitude of prestige was always sought out by the emperor for one ceremonial task or another. So by the 1060s, Ouyang Xiao is a living legend at the height of his prestige. Not only was he Hanlin academician, he was also vice commissioner of military affairs, vice minister of revenue, and assistant chief counselor. He was a major force at the top levels of the government. But Ouyang Xiao by this time had become a gradualist. He had tried to push through reforms in the past and had his efforts explode in his face a couple times. Now he's in his 60s and wiser, and he had at last reached the pinnacle of his career, and I guess he just didn't have any fight left in him. But you know how it is everywhere. Politics is all the same wherever you go, and there was no lack of aspiring politicians out to get Ouyang Xiao, to bring him down, to further their own agenda, a favorite pastime of all politicians. One official brought serious charges against him, and in 1067, he was charged with carrying on an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law, among other things. And, you know, his past history is sort of a man who had the eye for the ladies didn't help him much in this case. This wasn't true, and everyone knew this was nothing but a political smear. But you know how it is. And in this campaign year in the USA, these tactics to say something horrific about a candidate and then backtrack or have proxies make outlandish charges that others can secretly support and at the same time have complete deniability. This tactic works today. And let me tell you, it worked back in the Song Dynasty too. So this charge had the desired effect and Ouyang Xiao fell victim to this intrigue and was, of course, you know, devastated. Like the other times, Ouyang Xiao was sent out to various places to serve, you know, because of the circumstances, you know, who he was, the shadiness of the charges brought against him. He was allowed to work in postings that kept him within the immediate orbit of his home near Fuyang in Anhui. He offered his resignation on a number of occasions, always being refused. But in 1071, when he reached the official retirement age, his wish to retire was granted. And he remained in Anhui till the end of his days, which, unfortunately, weren't destined to be that long. A year after his retirement, Ouyang Xiao died he died uh, during the reign of the Shenzong Emperor, the sixth Song Emperor. This was an emperor who wholeheartedly embraced many of the reforms that Ouyang Xiao and Fan Zhongyan had once called for in their minor reforms. But sadly for Ouyang and Fan, those two carried out their campaign for reform in the government, education, and how society was organized during the time when the pushback from an easily manipulated Renzong emperor, and strong resistance from the conservatives ensured their failure. Now, a new emperor was on the throne, and this was the time of the then Nanjing governor Huang Anshi, right man at the right time. Ouyang Xiao, 
He was the right man at the wrong time, I guess you might say. You see, a whole slew of reforms were passed that were all credited to Wang Anshi. So although Ouyang and Wang were very much from a similar mold, history records that the new policies and reforms that vastly overhauled how things were in China were credited to Wang Anshi instead. But as we'll find out perhaps on another day, Wang Anshi's major reforms suffered from a major dose of meddling by political factions, notably the great Song historian Sima Guang. Sima Guang is on my list of uh, future topics. He was a hardcore conservative who worked overtime to scale back and delay some measures Wang Anshi called for with the emperor's backing. Sima used his powerful position to sort of, I guess you could say, make a mockery of these reforms. There's nothing like political force of will and bureaucratic resistance to gum up the wheels of progress. Okay, we'll stop here today, and I hope you all grooved on this little slice from Song Dynasty China. We revisited a lot of things we discussed in the Northern Song podcast episode 28, but we focused in on the whole aspect of reform and the interesting dynamic that existed in China at this time. It really was a fantastic period for China. The Tang Dynasty was great and all, but if I had to choose, I'd pick the first hundred years of the Song Dynasty as the time I wouldn't mind traveling back to. I'm sure the hygiene was better in the Song than the Tang anyway. Besides the four names I mentioned, all great scholars, writers, poets of the early Song, Ouyang Xiu, Fan Zhongyan, Wang Anshi, Sima Guang, there were many, many others. Uh, Su Shi, uh, the great painter Zhang Ziduan, the poet Mei Yao Chen. There were a lot of great minds walking around China during the 11th century. Shen Kuo also. It was Shen Kuo, you recall, who first mentioned one of the four great inventions of the ancient world, the compass. He mentioned this in his work, the uh, Dream Pool Essays, or Meng Xi Bi Tan. Hey, go check out the... Um, Seneca podcast from January 12th, the year-end roundup for certifiable Zhongguo Tongs recap all the big stories in China from, you know, various angles. And of course, fantastic commentary from people who know what they're talking about. You can find them as part of the um, pop-up Chinese podcast. That was a good show. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off, as I do most of the time, from Claremont, California. Join us next time, won't you, for another how presumptuous of me, exciting episode of the China History Podcast.